Sing it out. This is our destiny. The battle's already won. Make it loud. We're giving everything. By the cross, we have overcome. Hello, and welcome back to the Home Bible Study Podcast. Um, thank you for joining us. We are currently studying in the letter to the Hebrews. We have uh, come to chapter 12, and we are finishing up this really, really great chapter. I have to admit that when I first came to this chapter, I found it very daunting. Um, There was just so much information. It was so densely packed, and I really have, have had to draw on a lot of prayer and supplication just to be able to scratch the surface of some of these very important doctrinal things that are being communicated to us in this chapter. And I just encourage and exhort everyone who's following along to really kind of chew the cud and meditate on the things that are covered, not only uh, in Hebrews in this particular chapter, but all of scripture. But you know, in our, the times that we live in, this is so pertinent to us. There's so many applications uh, to our lives uh, in, the, in the days that we live in and uh, of this particular chapter. And I just pray and hope that you have received that kind of blessing from it. I certainly have. And the lesson that we're going to have today is no different. Um, just when I think that we have reached the highest heights and the deepest depths of the word, the Lord says, no, no, I got more for you. And it's all good. So with that said, uh, forgive me for uh, rattling on. Let's get into the study itself and see what the Lord has for each of us in this. So we've come to uh, verse uh, 25. Of chapter 12. But the previous lesson, we saw how that Jesus has accomplished some pretty wonderful things for us, how that he has transferred us in this new relationship under the new covenant to a more intimate relationship with God and an intimate relationship with, when I say God, I mean the Godhead, as well as with him personally. He has, the Father has given him this body so that he would be able to uh, interact with us in a more personal way. And I hope that you were able to see some of that from the past lesson, that this is what he's he's done. He has, uh, like a good servant, gone out and found a bride, and he is presenting us to the Father as that bride. And so that's where we are. That's where we left off. And we we left off on the blood of sprinkling in verse 24 that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And I could spend probably a month just on that verse alone Um, because Hebrews is about better things and how much better we have it than any believers have ever had it in the past. And I always think about um, Adam. You know, I think Adam of everyone had it the best. He had the best relationship because 
prior to sin being introduced, um, he had this fellowship with God that uh, must have been pretty wonderful. But, you know, sin was there. Sin, he just, he had a untested nature. So still, he didn't enjoy the wonderful things that we enjoy today. So we have to really recognize that, that we do have better things than the believers of the past. And we have more knowledge. We have a more complete understanding of the will and purpose of God than I think anyone has enjoyed throughout any dispensation. And what are we doing with that? You know, are we consumed with the things of this world, the things that are going on uh, maybe in our government, in our town, uh, the debates about uh, brutality, uh, race, gender, all these things that all they do is take us away from the wonderful things that we have in Christ. So let's be weary of that and let us focus in on the one who has done so many wonderful things for us in our lives and is continuing to do wonderful things. He continues to bring great blessings to us and care for us intimately. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So we saw that in the last lesson, I hope. And now we're going to move to the end of the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read all the verses and then we'll jump into it. Uh, starting with verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And his word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as the things that are made, uh, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, and I promise you, <laughs> I will try my best, but I just am not able, you know, to really uh, spend the time to really dry out all the wonderful things that are here, but I'm going to really do my level best to get you what I can in the time we have allowed, uh, allowed to us. So um, starting with verse 25, we start off with a warning. We transition from, hey, this is what Jesus has done for us. And now we move into the warning and the warning is necessary. We need warnings um, as believers because we struggle. We have two natures, those of us who are saved. We have the new nature, the God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us, and we have the old nature, the one we were born with. And there's a conflict, a constant conflict that goes on, a battle for supremacy. And um, so these warnings help us to kind of clear the fog. There's a fog in our minds that's created by the, the old nature and the uh, the word of God is clear. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit is very clear. Uh, but, you know, we just have that old nature. We get confused. So 
these warnings are set to help us because the Lord knows us. He knows how we are. He knows that we are weak in the flesh and that we need these warnings to kind of shake us up. Peter said to stir up our righteous minds by way of remembrance. You know, we have to be reminded of things. Um, and it's a, it's a problem that we have, but the Lord has the answer. And that's the indwelling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. If we could go a second without that ministry, well, he wouldn't have to indwell us. The fact that he indwells us constantly means that we have a constant need. And it also shows the grace of God in caring for us in our constant need. So here we have this warning. Uh, he says, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Uh, that's pretty direct. You know, obviously there's an opportunity for us to refuse. There's a, we have the ability to uh, quench the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, by just going in another direction and not listening. But here we have another one of those very important warnings that come throughout this letter that we don't do that. And it's a warning to everyone. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. So who are we refusing when we do this? We're not. Re you're not refusing me. You're not refusing to pay a ticket. You're not refusing to mow your lawn. You're refusing to listen to God. And this is what we need to understand. We need to slow down and really meditate on that. Uh, is that a wise idea? Probably not. Not only because of who and what God is, but also because you're refusing to listen to the one who cares for you intimately. You know, we have our own hangups, our own things that go on in our mind that make us think that, yeah, I don't know if I want this. And God is extending to us constantly this grace, this love. And we have the audacity to turn it down. Now, the problem with that is, is that leads to our injury, whether we know it or not. You know, it's really important for us in faith to trust and believe God. You know, that's what faith is. It's a positive reaction to divine revelation. When God speaks to you and leads you in a direction, go in that direction. You don't have to understand it. It doesn't have to make sense. Just know that it's from him and that it's good. You know, it might not look good. It might not taste good. It might not feel good. But if it's from him, it's good. It's good for us. And, you know, the, the opposite is true. You know, sometimes God brings us things that are so good and we, we refuse them because we just can't believe that, you know, we could enjoy that kind of goodness. It's the same thing. We have to submit to him and his will and trust him that he's going to take care of us. So it's really important that we don't refuse the one that's speaking. Um, he says here, um, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. And then there's a warning here. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we, shall not we, escape 
if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Now, there's a lot to unbundle here. It seems pretty, you know, on the surface, it's pretty straightforward. Like, look, the people on earth that he spoke to, they didn't escape if they refused him. So how can we now that he's in heaven? And there's a contrast being drawn here. But before I get into that, let's remember the context. There's a near view application of this. That's what was going on right then with the Hebrews. And the far view application is reaching to us today. So let's start with the near view application. So those Hebrews, that was the early church. They had just transitioned from the old covenant, everything that they had known their entire lives, their history, everything associated with the temple worship, uh, the priesthood, the sacrifices. And now Jesus has come and said, all that's done away with, I am the fulfillment of all those things. Well, there's a lot of people there were Jews that didn't believe in Christ. They continued on with that old covenant worship because they were Sadducees or Pharisees and they had invested interest in keeping that economy, that system alive, right? But Jesus came to uh, fulfill that and to make it go away. Well, these new believers who received the grace of God, who have obeyed the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, now they're serving him under the new covenant. Well, there's consequences for that. They received persecution. They were exiled. They were alienated from their families. There's a lot of costs associated with that. And the same thing is true for us today. Let's fast forward this all the way up to our modern times. If you're going to uh, make a stand or proclaim any truths associated with the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory, his person, his work, uh, the gospel, then you must be prepared to pay a cost for that. Because we live in a world where that is not popular. Now, it's interesting that we have churches on every corner. America is proliferated with churches. Uh, I call it churchianity. Because it's not Christianity, but it's churchianity. There's a whole system of churches and people and organizations, and they get together and they, you know, have cookies and they talk about things about the government and about what's right and what's wrong and gender and race and all these things are discussed. But none of it has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a system that has been created that is an apostasy of what these people were experiencing. These people were experiencing the true church. You know, they were meeting in their homes. They were gathering together in caves wherever they could to enjoy the fellowship and uh, share the word and all things in common. But now we have this, you know, public um, general worship that's not even worship. It's not even the assembly around Christ, the assembly around things. It's an assembly to just assemble. Uh, that's what we have today. So if you were to go to one of these churches, one of these groups, and to start to speak about what the Bible actually says, you will find out very quickly that they're not interested in that. They will make it very well known to you. You may go to a Bible study and thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to go to a Bible study, be around a bunch of believers. But as soon as you talk about what 
you learned in the word something that's true that God has shown you, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Because like, that's not why we're here. You know, it's sad, but it's the truth. And this is the world that we live in. We live in the time of the apostasy, the great turning away. So uh, there's going to be a cost. And uh, it's been that way throughout history. <clears throat> and it's the same thing was happening with these Hebrew believers and the same thing will happen with us. So we have to be prepared for that. Um, that is the world we live in, you know, at and the least you're going to be considered crazy at the very worst, as it is in some countries, you'll be killed for your belief, your worship, your glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the time that we live in. That's the, that's the um, conditions in which we're giving this warning to, to listen, to hear the one that speaks. So this is, this is um, where we are, uh, and that's where these believers are. And, that's, and I say that to draw a connection between their experience and our experience. Even though we're in a different time than they were, you know, the world is the same. Our enemies are the same, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so it's important for us, since we do live in this antichrist environment, this environment that's hostile to our Savior, that we are careful to listen because the things that the Lord tells us, he tells us for our benefit and he's going to guide us to peace. He's going to keep us in that perfect peace that only he has. And for us to be able to enjoy that, we must listen. That's what the writer is saying. It's important for us not to refuse him that speaketh. Okay. So if they who refused him that spake on earth, for if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth? Let's look at that. So what is that referring to? What does that mean, they that he refused him that he spake to on earth? Why is there a contrast made between the earth and the um, heaven? Well, because Jesus started out his ministry speaking to people on earth. Um, the grace of God is seen in his multiple interactions with man. If you're really thinking about it, it's amazing how often God himself has interacted with man. Um, for those who take that lightly, for those who take the word of God lightly, for those who openly mock his grace, what else should they expect other than eternal damnation? But the grace of God is seen throughout history, starting from as far back as, you know, the garden. You know, he mentioned in the previous verse, Abel, all the way back in the garden, um, God was speaking to mankind all the way through. Then he started speaking to the nation Israel. Then he started speaking to uh, the prophets. He spoke to through them. He spoke, he came here in person, right? In the gospels, he personally came here to speak to man, right? To warn man, to instruct man, to give us what we needed to know, to reveal the father, right? Well, 
throughout all that time, there were people refusing him. How can that be? You know, it's mind boggling that anybody would refuse God. Yet, in spite of our refusal, he still speaks. That's what should amaze us. You know, some people get so caught up on things that, you know, uh, about, you know, the different doctrines of election and uh, predestination and, oh, well, you know, that just doesn't seem fair. Well, what about this doctrine? The doctrine of the revelation of God to man and how often he's come to us. And look how we treated him when he came. We killed him. That's, that's our response to God, revealing his love, his grace, and truth to us. That's our response. But nobody says, well, that seems unfair. No, nobody says that. But that's, that's the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ that he spoke to us and he's come to us many times and spoke to us on earth. Well, there's consequences for those who did not listen. And nobody has a problem with that. Nobody's saying, well, you know, that just doesn't seem right that those people would die and go to hell who killed the Lord Jesus and persecuted him and spat on his face. And yeah, that just doesn't seem, no, no, everybody agrees that, yeah, they, they really deserve what they got. Well, everybody can agree with that. Well, now we've moved to a new position, a new covenant. We have the new covenant in his blood. We move from the Old Testament, the old economy, you know, the mountain where, you know, you couldn't approach it and thunderings and, you know, there had to be a sacrifice. That's all moved away. And now we have grace, just his grace. He calls out to his people and makes himself known. But he's not speaking to people from earth. That's over with. You know, he's done that. That's over with. Now he's in heaven. Now he's seated in heaven, glorified. The Father has given him all things and exalted him through the heavens, Hebrews said. So that's where he is now. But he's still speaking. That's what's amazing. He's still speaking to man. He hasn't cut us off. But now he speaks from a different place. Before he would sit eye to eye with Peter and he would wash his feet. Right Now everything is in place under his feet. But he's still speaking. How wonderful is that? That he is still speaking to us. So it says we should be careful not to refuse him when he speaks because... You know, we had the consequence of when he spake on earth. Well, it says, uh, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So now we see there's been an added emphasis to the fact that now this same God, this same Savior, Jesus, is speaking from heaven from an exalted position, from a position of being completely glorified and exalted, having completed the work that the Father sent him to do. And he's still speaking. So the consequences of refusal 
are greater because he's speaking from a position that's greater. Now, God has always been God. He's never not been God. But he had humbled himself to come to earth. God, it says, emptied himself, right? There's a hypostatic union where he was fully God and fully man. And he emptied himself with some of his deity, his knowledge of his deity, so that he could experience being a man. And in doing so, he humbled himself. And now he is fully exalted. So the consequences are greater. We live in a time of greater revelation. So also there is greater consequence for those who refuse. So the writer is really sending that home here. In verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised saying, yet once more, Shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. So here we see something that's extremely important. And I hope that I communicate it effectively. Um, why is the consequence different now? The writer is going to give us an example of why the consequence for refusing the word of God, for not listening to him, is greater. Um, he's referring to this verse from uh, Haggai. Um, there's a verse uh, in Haggai chapter 2 verse 6 that that this is a reference to. And I don't think Haggai completely understood the significance of that verse even when he shared it with the people of his day. But now we have God the Holy Spirit uh, through this writer elaborating on its meaning. And we have greater context because we have a greater knowledge and understanding of God's purpose and his plan. So what he's doing here is saying, whose voice then? Well, when is then? Well, that's the old covenant. That's the Old Testament then. Back then when they approached the mountain. Back then when they approached the God and they were required to go through priests. They were required to have... Uh, a blood sacrifice before they could even come close to God. This, that was then. And God shook the earth then. There's several instances where God has shaken the earth. Um, there's the earth, great earthquakes and thunderings that came from Mount Sinai, which I think this is a, a direct reference to. But there's also the uh, great earthquake that happened uh, when Jesus died upon the cross. And then there's going to be another earthquake that we know of that's going to shake the entire world that happens um, when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation period. And it's going to cause such a geographical change in the planet that it's going to elevate Jerusalem to be like on top of a mountain. It's going to elevate Jerusalem. So it's going to, we have these earthquakes that are coming. And this is what's referenced when God shakes the earth. Well, all of these are judgments. When God shakes the earth, it's a judgment. It's, it's to let everyone on the planet know that his judgment or his fury, his power has been stirred. So that's what this is. That's what this is telling us. That then whose voice, just his voice, 
shook the earth. Well, the voice that shakes the earth is the voice of judgment, right? That's the voice that that causes Moses to say, uh, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. That's the voice of the past. That's the voice that it says, whose voice then shook the earth. The reference to the past relationship and all the things associated with his holiness and our sin and not being able to approach him without a sacrifice, right? But he says, but now, now that he's in heaven, but now he hath promised, okay? So when God makes a promise, God does not have to promise anything. God can just say something and it's as sure as a promise. It's more sure than any promise. But when he does make a promise, that accentuates it and makes it to you to know that there is no chance of this not happening. That this is so set in stone, it's as if it's already happened. So he says, but in verse 26, but now he hath promised saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. So why is that? Why would God have to, we know he shook the earth, that was a judgment, why would he need to, why would there need to be a judgment on heaven? Isn't that curious? Doesn't that make you kind of think, um, why would that be? Well, I think this is telling us, this is God's way of telling us of the surety of the things that are before us. We are, um, we're going to enter into the eternal state. We have the church age is the rapture that ends the church age and begins the tribulation period. Then you have a seven year tribulation period, which will be ended by the return of the Lord Jesus himself, where he will set foot <laughs> upon the mount and we, he, everybody will see him. This great earthquake is going to happen that changes the typography of the earth uh, and he will establish his kingdom, his 1000 year rule upon earth, right? And at the end of that 1,000-year reign, uh, Satan will be let loose. There'll be one final rebellion that he will um, uh, pretty much do away with by the word of his mouth. And then we enter into the eternal state. So at that time, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, according to Revelation. He's going to remake the earth we live on now, he's going to remake heaven, right? And this remade heaven and earth is the shaking that's being referred to. Because, you know, we think of heaven right now as just this perfect place, uh, full of God's glory and grace. And it's true. That's what it is. Uh, it's the throne room of God. But we also have to remember that even heaven has been tainted by sin. You say, well, how is that? You know, well, because Satan, a Lucifer, it says sin was found in him. So the sin of pride. So he revolted along with a third of the angels. And sin from that point on was a part of the heaven that is now. Uh, God dealt with that rebellion. He cast Satan and all those rebelling uh, angels out. That's the demons that we know today. Uh, but Satan still has access to heaven. It says that 
Night and day, he goes before God to accuse the brethren. That's what he does. He's always, you know, pointing fingers at us and saying, well, look at that guy. You know, you, that, that's one of your people and look what he's doing. And that's why we need the ministry of uh, the Lord Jesus in his high priestly ministry. And when we confess our sin, he's faithful to cleanse us of it. And then he tells Satan, he says, yeah, well, I died for him and my blood is sufficient. And that's our defense. So that's what Jesus is doing. He is working on our behalf as our great high priest to um, to counter the accusations of the the evil one. So so sin is there. There's a Satan has access to heaven still. The other uh, angels do not, but he does. He has access. But there's going to come a time, and I think, in my opinion, I can only say this uh, as my opinion. It's going to coordinate with the beginning of the tribulation period where he's going to be cast out, where he won't have access anymore. Um, that's what the book of Revelation teaches us. And it says that he's going to be furious because he knows he has a short time. He knows he only has seven uh, years to uh, to be active. And so, um, so my point by saying all that is that, you know, there needs to be a new heaven. There's going to have to be a judgment on the heaven that is now to make it new. Uh, just like the earth is going to have to be made new. Once we reach the eternal state, once sin and Satan are dealt with uh, finally, then God is going to remake heaven and earth. And it's going to be one that is not... Uh, that has no sin, that sin has never affected. And that's when we will enter into the heaven of heavens. That's what uh, awaits us. So there's this shaking that is to come, this judgment that is to come. That's all that the unsaved people have to look forward to is judgment, unfortunately, this shaking. Now we see that shaking as a great blessing for us, but for the unsaved, not so much. So it's really important to understand all the things that are being said here by the uh, writer and how that he is encouraging us that, hey, look at what we have. Look at the wonderful future we have in Christ that's already set for us, that God is not finished. We look around and we get discouraged and we say, oh, look at the world today. It's just awful. The things that are going on and it can be very discouraging. But we have to remember this is part of his plan and he's nowhere close to finish. You know, and all we are required to do is not not fix the world. God doesn't want us to fix the world by, you know, we got to find the right leaders and vote in the right president or the right representatives. No, no. All we have to do is listen to the one that speaks from heaven. That's all we have to do. Okay, and refuse him not. And he'll take care of the rest of this stuff. He's He's been taking care of it for a long time, and he knows better than we do. In verse 27, it says, And this word, yet once more, signifieth the remaining of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So here we see the key to this verse, understanding the fact that, 
you know, God is going to shake everything that can be shaken. If it's not pure, if it's not uh, unshakable, right, then it's going to be shaken. It's going to be judged. And that's why he's placed us, the Father has placed us in Christ, because Christ is unshakable. Christ is seated in heaven, right? Uh, he is in his place of rule and reigning, and he cannot be shaken. When he was on earth, uh, he could not be shaken by sin. Sin couldn't affect him. That made him the perfect sacrifice for us who are trapped by sin, who are damned to eternal destruction by sin. But Jesus, he couldn't be affected by sin. He couldn't be shaken. And so it made him the perfect sacrifice for those whom the Father would place in him. And, those, and once he was resurrected to life eternal, he became the firstborn of many brethren. Now all those whom he calls, that he calls to bring to himself, that the Father has given him, he will lose not one. He says, of all those the Father has given me, I won't lose one. Because they're his. They're his bride. And he loves them with a love that's eternal. And that love will keep them. And that love is the love that he uses to speak to them from heaven. And so all the things that can be shaken, all the things that are impure, all the things that are wood, hay, and stubble, all the things that are not of God, those things can be shaken. And God is going to shake them. That's what he says. He says, I'm going to shake, a, shake, my judgment is coming. And the word shaken is, you can just put judgment right in that place. And, and he says, the things which cannot be shaken, which cannot be judged, will remain. Well, what are the only things that can't be judged? Well, only God is above judge, being judged. He's the only one that's above that because his holy holiness and his righteousness. And all those who've been placed him in Christ, they enjoy not being able to be shaken. And so we need to embrace that. We need to embrace the fact that we have been placed in Christ and we have this great blessing. But the judgment is coming. And it's up to us. One of the things that we've been told to do is to tell people the judgment is coming. You know, it's real. And we're the evidence of it through his saving grace that he's delivered us. We're the evidence that just like his grace and salvation is real, so is his judgment. And he will judge all things. Uh, nothing is going to slip by. Verse 28, wherefore, so why, well, there's that word, you know, wherefore. So it's a transition word that connects everything that's been said up to this point. You could say, uh, you know, because of all this is going to happen, because we know this to be true, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So since we know we have this in Christ, this blessing of uh, this kingdom that, uh, and when it speaks of a kingdom, it speaks of a reign. So this is not speaking of the millennial kingdom. This is the kingdom reign that comes 
in the eternal state when God makes a new heaven and a new earth and he reigns over all things as king. This is going to be the ultimate reigning of God with no sin, where he brings the old covenant and the new covenant believers together in one. All those believers that um, are born and live in the millennial kingdom, we're all going to be brought into one and all under the headship of Christ. And he will reign as our king. So because of that, we receiving the kingdom. So the word we is very exclusive there. It's not we, everybody in the entire world. It's we, those who have been placed in Christ. We, those who are unshakable because we're in Christ. We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, meaning it won't be affected by sin. There will be no sin that could take us away or to disrupt that fellowship, that connection that we have to the Lord Jesus. There will be no moving. It will be what is known as the eternal state, unchanging. And if that doesn't cause you to rejoice, I don't know what will. I mean, just the thought of that. I mean, meditate upon that. The fact that we are headed to a point in time that is outside of time, actually, a point in eternity where we will be in a constant forever state of bliss, of rapturous love for our Savior and his love to us. I think that's pretty wonderful. And he says, a kingdom which cannot be moved. This is not, we don't ever have to worry about anyone disrupting us or changing that. So he says, because we know that <clears throat> we should have, <clears throat> there should be a certain responses. <clears throat> From us, since we know that this is true and we know this is our future, based on these facts, we should have a certain response in faith, right? What, what do we say? Faith is a positive response from divine revelation. We have this divine revelation, and He lists to us what our response should be. And I think it's important for us to see these things because the writer does this not only because. He's trying to give us slow people like myself direction as to, hey, this is how you should respond. But also for those who have already responded that way, it's a confirmation to say, hey, that's how I feel. Then his spirit confirms with our spirit that we are the children of God. So it's really important for us to study the word so we can see these things. So let's see what our response should be based on verse 28 to this divine revelation. He says, we should... Um, let us have grace. So we should enjoy grace. That's the first thing he says. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's asking us, you know, basically, are you enjoying grace? To enjoy grace means to rejoice. When you acknowledge God and all that he's doing for you and has done, it the response should always be, he's doing that out of his grace. It's not because we deserve it. We don't merit anything. Everything that we get from God is from his grace. And we should be enjoying that grace. So that's what he says. Let us have grace. Let us enjoy it. Rejoice. That's the response to grace, to enjoying grace, is to rejoice. So are you rejoicing? We should be. Am I rejoicing? I should be rejoicing. 
Um, then he says, <clears throat> whereby, uh, wherefore, we receiving the kingdom, which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God. Okay? So whereby is where he says, you know, once you have grace, there should be a result of having this grace. Once you start rejoicing, then through this grace and rejoicing leads to something else. What is that? It leads to serving God. What do you do when you're rejoicing? When you recognize God in your life and what he's doing, it causes you to joy, to feel joy and to rejoice. And that is the impetus for serving God. If you are trying to serve God, for any other reason, you're wrong. Okay? Love. We, we serve God because we love him. Love is the motivation for, how, for our service. I mean, that's the only motivation that's acceptable. If there's any other reason, he says the greatest of these is love. Love is why you serve. Love is why you do anything for God. And that comes from him first showing his love to us. How? Through his grace. So you see, it's like a cause and effect. So one leads to the other. Okay, so we serve God. The truest joy you'll ever know is in serving God. And also to allow others to minister to you. You know, a lot of people think, well, to serve God, I got to go minister to other people. No. Sometimes you serve God by letting others minister to you, just like I'm ministering to you right now, right? We're together serving and worshiping God. So it's a, it goes both ways. So always be open um, to God and let him lead you in service. That's what's important. Don't listen to him who's in heaven that's guiding you. Uh, it's very important. So next we're going to see the uh, first, we saw that the grace leads to service, and then there's a certain kind of service. He says, uh, whereby we may serve God acceptably. So what does that mean, to serve God acceptably? Well, everyone has a role in service. You know, God has, uh, we're all part of the body of Christ, and one is an ear, one is a nose, one is a foot, you know, and we all serve in different ways. And we have to understand that we all have a um, territory that we've been given of service. And that's that's our acceptable territory of service. Uh, you know, people come in and say, oh, you know, you have this talent and that talent. You should be doing this and you should be doing that. Well, actually, what I should be doing is listening to God who's in heaven. Lead me and tell me which direction I should go in and what service that he wants me to do. And if we would just do that, you would find so much more joy in your service and in what you're doing. And don't get distracted by all the things that are going on that seem contrary. Focus on the service that you're providing to God and on behalf of God. And you will find so much blessing in that service. I promise you, that's the way it works. So everyone has a role and it's important that we look to the Lord to guide us, right, in what we're doing so that we're devoting our time, our money, our talent where it is acceptable to him. And he will, he'll lead us in that. And that's why it's important 
that we refuse not him that speaketh. It's very important. And it also says to me, you may serve God <coughs> acceptably with reverence. What does that mean? With reverence. Well, reverence here speaks of awe, the awe of worship. You know, we have to always keep in our mind who and what God is, that this is God. This is the creator of the universe. And it's easy for us to get very casual, I think, with God. And uh, we have a personal relationship. God is not a um, throwing thunders and, you know, trying to, you know, it's not like we're, we have this barrier has been removed uh, where we have access. You know, we can go directly to God at any time. But we, we can't lose sight of that grace and where that grace is coming from. It's coming from our God. And we can't lose sight of who he is and what he's doing. That he's exalted. That he's in heaven. That he reigneth. We have to keep that in our mind so that our service to him is of the proper quality. Because when you, when you have a reverence for God, you are going to put more into what you're doing for him. You're going to give him your all. You're not just going to kind of half do things. You're going to put everything you have into it. And it's because of love. Love compels you to do that. You know, I think of uh, Jeremiah when he said, you know, I wasn't going to speak anymore, but it was like fire in my bones. You know, he had to speak. He was compelled. Paul says it's the constraining love of Christ that compels us to speak, you know. Love is where it comes from. And so with love comes this reverence, this awe, this understanding of who you are and what you deserve and how that he's given you something different. With reverence. And it says with reverence and godly fear. So what is this godly fear? Because so it sounds like those two things are the same, but they're not. Godly fear here, I, I think, speaks of who Jesus is, that, you know, he's God and we're undeserving to even know his name. You know, he's come to earth and spoke to man over all these years, centuries, and look how man has treated God, even up to this day. But in spite of that, he still speaks. And because we're undeserving of that kind of love and grace from him, um, and because he gives us a loving embrace and not judgment, we should always have this reverential fear. It's not a fear like, I think he's going to judge me. It's a fear that recognizes who we are in relationship to who he is. And that we're still uh, encompassed about by sin. That we live in a world, what, is, what does the prophet say? I live in a world of unclean people. And I have an unclean tongue and a world with people with unclean tongue. We, we hear people blaspheme God all the time. We're surrounded by uh, people who are anti-Christ. But in spite of that, he sees us lovingly. And he still allows us to approach him. This is uh, what I think a godly fear is made of. And to accentuate that, verse 29 really sends it home, I think. Verse 29 causes us to really see who God is um, in heaven. Um, 
who God is in creation. Verse 29, it says, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, what does that mean, a consuming fire? Well, what do you think of when you think about a consuming fire? I mean, you think of a fire that consumes everything. Uh, fire is one of those things that um, it destroys everything that gets close to it. You know, that's what fire does. It burns. And when it's used properly, it can warm you. But once it gets out of control, destruction, devastation, it's consuming. It consumes everything in its path. The application here is that God's holiness is like a fire, you know, like that bush that Moses saw, that it burned without consuming it, a fire that caused Moses' face to shine. Um, God is uh, all-powerful, and his very presence affects everything that is around it. That's who God is, you know, and we don't have a really a true understanding of the consuming fire that God is. But his word reveals different aspects of his person, his power, his personality. And we can, you know, by amalgamation, start kind of putting the little pieces together and we get a vague image even. And even that is awesome. You know, so this is who God is. He's his he's a he's holy. And to approach him is something that is just unheard of. But yet he has allowed man to do so. He told Moses, remove your shoes because you walk on holy ground. Because he's a consuming fire. He's that burning fire that's inside of us, like I mentioned earlier from uh, Jeremiah, that compels us to serve him, that in spite of all the threats, the, in spite of our physical weakness, um, we, we press on and we serve. He's that kind of consuming fire. Uh, he's the power that created the universe with just his fingers. That's what the Psalms say, that the creation of the universe was just finger play for him. And he's that consuming fire of judgment that uh, won't allow anyone to escape his righteous justice. And I think that's the biggest message that we got from this lesson is that the judgment is coming and it's a consuming fire. It's sure. It's coming. Now, those who have died apart from Christ, well, they know better now. But it's not over. He's, uh, his purpose is being worked out, and he's a consuming fire. His holiness is a blaze that consumes everything that gets close to it. Yet for us, those of us who are in Christ, we're like Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Remember when they were thrown in that fiery furnace? What did the uh, king say? He said, for these, make it seven times hotter than it normally is. It was so hot that the people that threw them in were consumed by the fire just from throwing them inside. And this is a picture of the judgment of God, but it's also a picture of the power of God, um, that he's a consuming fire. But what happened to Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? Well, they were seen inside dancing in the fire. 
And there was one other in there with him. It says they looked like the son of God. That's what we have. We've been given the son of God and he has taken that consuming fire and of holiness and placed us in a place where we can dance in holiness. We can rejoice in his holy fire. But we're not consumed by it. We can dance in his fire. Just like Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. What a blessing to have the God that we do. And I'm woefully unable or inadequate to properly present him the way I, I should. But I hope that in my attempt to do so, that you have learned something or seen something of his grace, of his kindness, of his power and his mercy, particularly to us, those of us who are his people and how he's blessed us. I hope that you've seen that. And if you're not saved and you're listening to this lesson, then let it be known to you for with, with great surety that you will only know God as your judge. And the fire that awaits you, it will be a consuming fire, but you won't be consumed by it. Only, you will eternally burn in hell in the lake of fire, yet not be consumed. And that is a horrible fate for anyone. I pray that you are one of his called ones. That the reason that you're listening to this message is because he's calling out to you in his grace. Yeah, today is the day of salvation. Hear him that speaks from heaven. You know, if you were to deny this message that he sent from heaven, what hope is there for you? The only hope anyone ever has is in Jesus Christ, in his person, in his work, in his resurrection, in his salvation. And I pray that that would be the blessing of everyone who uh, hears my voice. I pray that that's what it is. Otherwise, you have nothing to look forward to whatsoever but judgment the shaking that is to come. I pray we would listen to the one from heaven that he would make this lesson to be a special blessing to everyone and that he would be glorified in it. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to study your word. And for those of us who study together, that you would add the blessing of understanding of uh, the wisdom needed to apply your word correctly and that we would um, have the proper response to your divine revelation and faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.